Hello and welcome to another episode of CLRNN Cast, the podcast series for CLRNN. Today, we're in conversation with Dr. Andrew Nevin. Andrew is a partner and chief economist at PwC Nigeria. He is PwC West Africa's financial services leader across assurance, tax, and advisory. His clients include banks across Africa, insurance companies, and capital market players. He works at the complex intersection of economics, strategy, capital markets, and investment. Andrew is also a founding governor, Financial Center for Sustainability, Lagos, founding director of the African Institute for Leadership and Public Administration, and a tireless advocate for innovation in Nigeria, amongst other things. Andrew mentors, writes, and is a well-known media figure in Africa. It's a pleasure to have you on CLRNN Cast. No, th- thank you. I'm just I'm delighted to be here. We thought that we could start by having a chat about the state of the economy leading to the year 2020. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, let me let me start by giving a little bit of background the last few years. So we've had a difficult time since 2015, 2016. I'm sure people listening today know that we had in Nigeria an absolute recession in 2016. The economy shrunk 1.6%. And then we've had three years of uh, very poor growth, around 2% of official GDP numbers. And of course, the population growth in Nigeria is somewhere between 27 and 3%. So essentially, that means that uh, Nigerians prior to the COVID-19 crisis have been getting poorer and poorer per capita for four or five years. So in that context, we then came to the COVID-19 crisis. And I think it's it's fair to say that economists around the world were very slow to pick up on the, the kind of devastation that was coming. But if you if you think about it for a minute... When you lock down billions of people and they stop their daily activities, their spending is someone else's income. So what we've had is the greatest economic calamity in our lifetimes and just numbers that you've never seen before in terms of the contraction in economic activity. So people look for example, in the developed world, I think most co- countries are looking at a shrinkage in the economy of somewhere from 5 to 10%. That's about the range that we're looking for in Africa as well. I think South Africa is predicting 8%. Uh, Nigeria is uh, 4 to 9% by, I think, the IMF numbers, for example. And these are just enormous contractions in the economy. So we're in a very difficult economic situation on that. And of course, as we speak here, in, it gets towards the mid- midpoint of July, there's really no end in sight. I mean, the number of daily cases continues to rise. There's large numbers of hotspots around the world, including in the United States, now in Melbourne, it flared up again in Hong Kong. Romania is having real issues. Um, so we're in a very, very challenging situation. That does sound very dire. And yes, we do recognize that it is a global challenge. But if we were to look specifically at Nigeria, we recognize that we have two crises, essentially, that are rocking the economy at the moment. So we have the coronavirus, but we also have the oil and gas crisis as a result of the OPEX plus negotiations and activities. Could you talk about how this impacts the Nigerian economy? So we came into 2020 and people were mildly optimistic on the oil front. Uh, you might recall back in January, oil was around 60 and even went a little bit above $70. Uh, I think at the end of January, there were 
pundits that said that so far in 2020, Nigeria had the best performing stock market. Of course, when we have economic activity stop around the world, we have the demand for oil plunge. I mean, we took somewhere between 25 and 30 million barrels of oil demand out per day. It's still down, I think, about 15 million barrels. So OPEC, of course, wants to keep the price up, but it's impossible to cut that much production out of the world. So there was some production cut, but we've seen oil go down from that $70 number, the Brent oil, from $70 number to as low as into the high teens. Today, I think it's about $42, but a very low number for Nigeria, well below our, our benchmark. So what's the consequence of that? Well, oil, I mean, it's often said oil is the largest export of Nigeria. I think our view at PwC is, is being that that's actually not accurate. What the largest export are Nigerian people, because of course, diaspora remittances are larger than the oil flow to the, to the Nigerian government. But it is the biggest source of dollars for the government, and it is the biggest source of fiscal revenue for the government. So now we have what was a, a health crisis turning into an economic crisis in the Nigerian context turning into the fiscal crisis. So for those who follow closely the numbers, the government has said that the revenue flow to the government from oil is going to decline from 5.5 trillion naira to 1.1 trillion naira, so a reduction of 80%. The deficit's going to be in the order of 5 trillion naira. The interest payments are effectively equal to the tax receipts, which is extraordinary uh, on that. So it's created, in the midst of this uh, situation where we actually need fiscal stimulus, it's created an uh, unprecedented uh, fiscal crisis, as I said. And the government's been very open about it. So you know, what are the next, the next steps for the government? Well, you've already seen some consequences of this, I think, which we call a kind of forced restructuring of the Nigerian economy. So early in the crisis, the government came out and said the PMS, the foil, was being essentially deregulated. There's been a few bumps on the road on that, but that's essentially happened. The president assented, people might have missed it, to the ORNSA report, which discussed the high cost of governments. It was issued in 2013 in the Good Luck Jonathan regime, but never implemented. The president uh, came out and assented to it when the minister of finance brought it forward, which essentially says that I think there's no way we can go forward with the same cost of governance. Of course, the former Amir of Kano said the same thing, but even more importantly, the vice president last week said the, the same thing. So we're going to see a forced restructuring of the cost of governance. And of course, the thing that's most visible to people often is the exchange rate. So uh, even though the, the central bank uh, didn't really want to be put in a position where the exchange rate was devalued or where there was a compression of the unification of the exchange rate is effectively happening. So we've had a devaluation to 360, and now we've had an effective devaluation to, to 380. And we've had both the CBN and the Minister of Finance come out and say we're moved to a unified exchange rate. So this, what, what was a fiscal crisis is now turning into the restructuring of the well, Nigerian that's economy. interesting. It was just, I think, last week when there was a slight dip again, and we moved from 380 to 381, which was a minus 5.5% dip. So we understand the crucial challenges that are facing the economy. And you have mentioned the fact that there has been a political response in the, in the sense that the government acknowledges that things cannot carry on the way that they have been carrying on. But as you well know, this has been common knowledge and this has been discussed for several years. How has the government responded to protecting the economy? As we've seen across the globe, various governments have come up with palliatives and various packages to support both the people 
as well as the industries within their economies. But beyond that, we now see that many governments are moving from a response to the crisis itself to a response to the challenges of the future. How has Nigeria performed? Well, I think, I mean, early on, we, we were one of the first people to say that as uh, early as March, early March, in fact, that the number one challenge in the short term for Nigeria was to keep the food supply moving and to keep the uh, food supply chain and to keep the resources in the hands of the bottom pyramid. Because we went into this economic crisis and we had tens of millions of day laborers under lockdown losing their daily wage. You know, our biggest crisis was essentially people not being able to eat. And I think that the federal government and the state governments, civil society, uh, mosques, churches, uh, individuals, the organized private sector have all come together and done a reasonable job at that in the last few months. Just on that issue, though, it is critical that in the next few months as we enter the planting season that we continue to have progress in the way things work in Nigeria. The planting season has to work. Farmers need to get their inputs. They need to be able to get their products to market. All of that is critical to keep the food supply chain moving. But beyond that, I think it's been quite challenging for the government. I think they're, of course, aware that there needs to be fiscal stimulus. They're aware that there needs to be support for certain industries and, and certain individuals in society. But the reality is that Nigeria doesn't have the same level of resources or buffer that some other countries do. So if I compare it to developed nations, you've had the fiscal stimulus in the range of 15 to 25% of the GDP. So I'm, I'm Canadian. Yesterday, there was an update on the Canadian budget situation. Uh, we had a, a budget deficit so far this year of over $300 billion. Canadian dollars, which is just it's about twenty percent of the of the GDP. So that shows you the level of fiscal stimulus that people who, who had had the resources have been able to do around the world. When you contrast it with Nigeria, I think the fiscal stimulus is about uh, one and a half to two percent of of the GDP of Nigeria. So while the federal government is certainly trying, just given where we are fiscally, there just isn't enough room to do to do enough. And some of the interventions that we've done, for example, I think are well-meaning, but don't reach enough people. If you take, for example, CBN interventions on the interest rates, so there are intervention programs that they've asked the or not asked, they've mandated that banks reduce the interest rate on these intervention programs. So this would be in the entertainment industry, uh, SME, um, agri-interventions to reduce the interest rate from 9% to 5%, um, which is which would be great. But in reality, I think the total number of people benefiting from these sorts of loans is only 50,000 in all of Nigeria. So we have 200 million Nigerians, and we have a targeted program of support that only reaches 50,000 individuals or businesses. The international financial institutions have spoken a lot about the challenges that emerging economies would have in supporting their systems and protecting their citizenry through this period. Yeah, I think we've done about as, as well as we, we, we could have. In June 2019, the governor of the central bank Mr. Godwin Emefiele was talking about his five-year plan for the economy as and the banking sector was to play a crucial role in this. And his plan was to get us towards double-digit growth between 2019 and 2024. And the very first tier of that plan was to achieve domestic, macroeconomic, and financial stability. And at the heart of that was a recapitalization of the banks in Nigeria um, across the world, I suppose in more developed economies. The banks have been brought on to play a supportive role for the economy as they are not 
at the very eye of the storm, uh, as it were, in this crisis. What is the state of the Nigerian banking system and what role have has the banking sector played in this crisis? Well, I think that the, the banking sector as a whole is certainly in much better shape than in 2008 when I first came to Nigeria. I mean, we I was involved in the banking crisis at the time. There was very poor you know, criminal practices, right, where banks would lend money to people to buy their own stock, which is you know, certainly a criminal activity. It's coming out of out of that crisis. We had some years of robust growth. Your banks became better at lending, better at risk management. So 2010 to 2014, but certainly they've also suffered in the last four or five years. I think we've consistently said. That I mean, the banks are the best organized industry. They're well run. They're on top of the technology trends. They're trying to do innovative things. But we've consistently said that Nigeria asked too much of the banks. The reason Nigeria asked too much of the banks is because other things are not developed. So if you think, for example, of the capital markets, you like many of the things that we need to do. So pay for infrastructure, pay for the power sector, pay for expanding the agricultural sector. Those are things that need long-term capital. And that's not the way a bank works. A bank is essentially, in the Nigerian context, taking deposits, short-term deposits, it's not really structured to make long-term investments. Similarly, I hear a lot of people talk about venture capital and the need for the banks to play a role. That's that's not their role, but they're being pushed into this role because we lack these other structures. And, if, and the central bank itself is in that situation. So if you look at the the roles the central bank plays, starting with the Governor Sanusi, I mean, he began the whole program of intervention programs in sectors of the economy, and the current governor has continued. And Governor Sanusi's line at the time, I mean, many people may have missed this or too young to remember, but in 2013, in December, he said, why? He's getting criticized for these intervention programs. He said, but if we didn't do it, no one else would. So I think the intervention programs of the central bank and the ask of the commercial banking system is very, very high in the country because we lack some of these other structures, uh, particularly around capital markets, around the VC industry, around asset leasing, around long-term capital infrastructure, capital pension funds. I mean, PFAs are coming up finally to have enough money to make a difference if we can structure that, that properly. That said, I mean, they are the best organized group. I think certainly... And we've worked with them in terms of the immediate response to the COVID crisis. People have called on the banks and they've stepped up and played a major role from the organized private sector perspective in terms of uh, raising money, delivering palliatives, being a partner in, in government. And I think that's a positive role. But I don't think what the banks can't do in Nigeria is solve the fundamental structural issue, which is getting more capital invested. So we've said for years, if we had to explain the challenge in Nigeria in a single fact. We want to grow 6 to 8%, which is what PwC has said, 6 to 8% GDP growth inclusively. Uh, we need investment of around 27, 28% of GDP per year. If we want to grow at what the governor of the central bank said at 10%, which hardened me when he said it about um, 18 months ago, we need to invest probably 32, 33% of GDP. But we're only investing 16 or 17%. So it's mathematically impossible for us to grow at 6 to 8% if we're only investing 16 to 17%. So the fundamental question is, you know, why are we not investing enough? Why are Nigerians not investing enough? Why are the diaspora not investing enough? Why are foreigners not investing enough? Because obviously they don't think it's attractive to invest in Nigeria. So we need to solve that problem. What we can't do is say, 
we have an investment gap, so we need the banks to make that investment. Because if you compare that gap I just described, which is the difference between, say, 16% and 27% of GDP, that number is, that gap is probably 12 trillion naira short of investment a year. The banks have maybe 5% of that to invest. So the banks can't be the solution. Of course, the government doesn't have the resources either. They, they can't be the solution for closing the investment gap. The only solution is that the private actors in Nigeria, you know, outside of Nigeria, all around the world, invest in Nigeria. So when we go back to how the banks can, can help, I think they will be supportive. They're well-run. They're innovating their payment systems. Uh, they're trying to lend more money as the CDN encourages them, you know, finding credit uh, scoring systems so they're able to, to do that. Of course, fintechs are putting pressure on them with innovations in these areas. So the banks will play their role. You've mentioned the interest rates. Another thing would be the volatility of the Naira. At the moment, Nigeria is facing a serious liquidity crisis, which the central bank attributes to people, speculators playing the markets, but other people attribute to the wrongful actions, perhaps, or wrongful choices that the central bank is making. But the impact has been that investors would withhold their money. What do you think is going on with the money market? What impact has the government's recent policy choices had on the volatility and availability of Naira and the interest rates in Nigeria? People in Nigeria, of course, very concerned about the exchange rate. And at a very fundamental level, if you want a stable, strong exchange rate, people have to want, to want the Naira. So in the way that that's being managed before, when we've had these multiple rates, I mean, a few things happen there, which I think everyone listening on this podcast are, are well aware of. I mean, to begin with, if uh, in a few months ago before this devaluation, if you could get the official Naira at 305 and you could then sell it at 360, you were that was in effect the simplest way to make money. Why would you go to the trouble of running a business if you could just round trip the Naira? So it creates a distortion in the market that's damaging. You know, for businesses who are now trying to access, legitimate businesses trying to access the dollars, I can tell you that you then spend a huge amount of your time trying to access the dollars at 305 instead of going to the parallel market at 360. And to the extent that you get those dollars, it helps your business. And then your competitor doesn't get dollars at 305, so you have a competitive advantage, so it distorts the, the playing field. I mean, the multiple exchange rates also create problems for the investors outside because they just don't understand. So they're looking at different countries for their investment options. They go to a country where they understand the exchange rate regime. They understand how to bring in money, how to take out money. They come to Nigeria and they find out uh, multiple exchange rates, multiple forms to fill in, things published in the newspaper, uh, stuck at CBN, and they just decide to go to go somewhere else. So. I understand it. at one level, I understand the idea that we have scarce FX resources, so therefore we want to focus them on the highest needs for the country. But in practical reality, it creates all of these distortions that just make it very difficult for people to want to invest in Nigeria. And then, so you see what happens. People don't want to invest in Nigeria. And of course, keeping the exchange rate stable, one of the major sources of it is to create what you might call a capital sink. The people are they're not putting in capital into Nigeria to pull it out. They're pulling it in. They're putting it in to see the economy grow by 10, 20 times over the next 15 years. So it's just like a carbon sink, like the Amazon forests, right? Where it's just absorbing more and more capital. And in that case, in fact, the problem you're going to have is the Naira is too strong. 
on that. That's where you want to get to. But in, in fact, many of the CVN policies have made people not want to hold an IRA. So by definition, if you don't want to hold an IRA, it's going to be weak. And that's what we've seen kind of over and over time. And Nigerians have suffered from it. I mean, reality is there are certain products that we will not be able to produce in the short term that have to be imported. Uh, electronics, power, and machinery. I mean, we want to build up the power industry. Uh, all of the physical capital for that for now is going to have to largely come come from outside. So, I mean, we have, and we've been quite public about, about our position on, on the exchange rate along with others. So it has, it has really hampered, in our view, the economic growth. You set out the journey to 2020 and the, the impact of the ongoing crisis. Now, let's talk about the journey out of the crisis. What steps do you think the government should put in place in this next phase to get us out of the immediate challenges to the economy and how to rebuild towards 2021. We know that the economy has been projected to shrink by, at the very least, the most optimistic has been minus 3.4% from the IMF. And that only is if the oil prices rebound. So what, what steps do you think the government should be taking here? Well, I, I think our council has been, to, let's, let's just start with admitting that we need more investment in Nigeria to to grow inclusively. I hope it's always inclusive, not like 2010 to 2014, where it was highly skewed to the upper class. But if that's our objective and we need more investment, we need to be you know, attractive for, for, for that investment. And we often talk about sort of the, the cost of investment, but a lot of the challenge in Nigeria is the complexity of it. So we have overlapping MDAs at the federal level, overlapping state and federal jurisdictions. I mean, when I read the Nigerian press, um, I'm always amazed at, you, know, you set up a separate, and I know why, and we all know why this was done, but you set up a separate agency that would normally in another country just be a department of the ministry. So by setting up a separate agency with a separate board, you do a few things. One, you increase the cost because you now have a DG, you have a separate board, you often you have geopolitical considerations. You might have 36 board members. They all have to be paid. They need separate physical facilities. And of course, they now have overlapping jurisdictions. So people might have seen recently in the last few days, there's a fight between the, um, I think it's called the NDE, uh, and the Ministry of Labor, who is controlling the 774,000 jobs that are part of the fiscal stimulus coming out of COVID-19, right? So in most countries, there wouldn't be a separate agency that would be all under the Ministry of Labor. There'd be two different departments that could sort it out internally. But we've created all of this complexity at the federal level, duplicated at the state level. And I think that's got to come to an end. And as I said, the forced restructuring may bring it to an end because we simply can't afford that. So the word that we've used the last few years is what we need to be looking for is a simplicity on that. So for example, if you take PEBEC's work, I was once, if I remember correctly, you know, PEBEC, a fantastic organization. Uh, Dr. Tomoke is a national heroine, has done so much for the country, but she's worked under very difficult conditions. And I remember being at a PEBEC presentation where they were discussing the fact that you know, you're dealing with 29 MDAs as a business, you know, we're going to create a single window. But that is not attacking the fundamental problem. The real question is, why are there 29 MDAs you have to deal with? There needs to be simplicity at, at, at that level. So I think if we're going to come out of this, we need to get to the point where people want to invest their resources long-term in Nigeria. And they're only going to invest in it if there's clarity and there's simplicity on that. Now, part of that, too, we've said for a number of years, and I think a lot of people are going the same direction, is that things have to happen at the state level. 
It's a big country. It's a complex country. Every state has its own advantages out there. Only the people in the local, you know, local point really understand that, understand the environment, and they have to be the ones that attract investors, including people in the state, including the diaspora, particularly from that, that state, and including others to come into that state. So I think part of its simplicity, part of it is decentralization, really, and, you know, sending a clear message. And of course, the states have taken this on themselves. You look at Kaduna, you look at uh, Oyo, you look at Ogun. Of course, Lego State itself started way back in the early 2000s and taking their own economic destiny to their hands. But it's hard to see in such a large country any other choice. So those will be two things, you know, simplicity and, and decentralization as a starting point for that. Now, in terms of the simplicity, I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, I think we're going to have to eliminate a large number of the MDAs. And of course, that was what the Warren Say report was all about. But it's, as I said, maybe forced upon the country uh, purely through the fiscal situation. I mean, how many more months can we go with the, the $40 oil before we end the course depressed economy, which means CIT is down, PAYE is down? How far can you stretch the bar of the Naira before we start hearing what we heard back in 2015? I'm not an expert. I'm not a, a lawyer. But we were very heartened by... Um, the finance bill that Minister Ahmed, Her, Her Excellency Minister Ahmed, put out back before COVID-19 crisis, it's not just because the law, there were some very intelligent things. So, for example, a company with a turnover below 25 million naira wouldn't have to pay tax, but they would be in the formal sector. So this is a topic we've talked about a lot. How do you bring people from the informal sector to the formal sector? I mean, in the country... At least over 50% of our economic activity is the informal sector. So that really heartened us because they recognized that you wanted to make it simpler and less expensive to come into the formal system. So that's a direction for, for the law. But the best thing about the, what the finance minister did was she was very clear that, that the finance bill was not a one-off thing. So I think the previous finance bill had been like 2003 or something like that. And she said, like, you know, we put it out in 2019. We got some criticism. We take that. You know, next year, we'll put it out again. We'll refine it, refine it, refine it. So I think in all areas of the law, so you think of telecommunications, of banking, what there needs to be is this commitment to successive refinement no. and where we no, make progress every year, um, as opposed to something like the PIB, which is absolutely essential and still has, I don't believe, has got passed. Like I've lost track of it after 15, 60 years. But one area that I know that you're an expert in, of course, is insolvency and bankruptcy law. I mean, that's a critical component for to clarity around that, because, I mean, if you're now going to, if you're going to, I mean, the rules, of course, in, in many countries are very clear. I mean, you, you, know, you lend your money to a company, things can go well or go badly, but if they can't pay back, you know, you take the asset, right? And that really speeds up the restructuring process, the redeployment of, of resources, whereas in, you can see with what's happened with Amcon, I mean, too many companies... That ran into financial difficulties were left in the hands of the uh, of the founders or the promoters, right? Well, the you know the rule in a capitalist society is if you you're entrusted to run resources and it doesn't turn out so well, we don't put you in jail, but you don't have those resources. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Well, I think that I just maybe one final thing to put in is I often go to conferences and we're talking about comparables models that. Nigeria may want to learn from. And of course, I mean, Nigeria needs to find its own path, but it's always useful to look outside. But I hear people talking about Singapore. I hear people talking about Norway. I hear people talking about South Korea. And I, I don't think that is particularly helpful for us. I think that the closest model where we have a lot of things to learn is from the experience of India. So you know, to begin with, India 
There's a very big, messy proto-democracy, cleavages along religion, many, many different um, ethnicities in the country, large topographical differences. Every state has its own specific circumstances on that. And the one thing about India is no one can say that India is less complex than Nigeria because the other countries you might just say, well, they're simpler to manage, simpler to manage Norway, which is true. Why is India a good example? So they had what used to be called the Hindu rate of growth in the 70s or 80s of about 2% a year, very fast-growing population, so effectively getting poor, just bumping along. And then something switched on in 1991, 1992, and you really had you know, an Indian economic miracle, really on the same scale as China's economic miracle. But you've had it in a democracy. I mean, I, people have sometimes said, let's use China as a model. I can't see China as a model. China is a single-party dictatorship, highly controlled, totally closed society when it started to, to make its economic changes. And for me, it's not the model. But India, as I said, has all these similarities. Now, what, what did India do? They did two things, I think, that are worth thinking about for Nigeria. To begin with, they said states were really responsible for their own economic development. And they were forced into it, a little bit like Nigeria may be forced into it. So they had to take an IMF loan in 1991, I believe. They were headed to a balance of payments crisis. They airlifted their gold, literally airlifted their gold from Delhi to Geneva for that loan. And you know, as they got into this process, they said to the states, the center can't help you, you figure it out on your own. And states took their states in different directions. So you have something happening in the Mumbai area, Chennai, Tamil uh, Nadu is doing very well. Goa, of course, people have heard about. Kerala has essentially no poverty. I mean, states really took responsibility. And I think that's a good lesson for us. I think the other lesson for us for India is in the 1990s, they had very poor infrastructure, physical infrastructure, and it was not possible for them to export any manufactured goods through their port system. They didn't have the power infrastructure, the efficiency to be competitive. So what did they export? They exported Indian brains. Um, that was the beginning of the sort of business processing outsourcing boom for India. Companies like Wipro, for example, Tata, Tata Consulting. So you had the BPO. You also had you know, software engineering. And they just rode that boom. And it was in, that was what they exported. So they exported brains. Now, they exported both to the diaspora, like we do, but they also exported Indian brains without leaving the country. And we're starting to do that. And I think if you ask about this diversification, Nigeria is not going to be producing air conditioners anytime soon. Nigeria is not going to be producing cars for export anytime soon. But we're already producing Nigerian brains that sit in Nigeria and that we export. So excellent example of this is this incredible company, Outsource Global, run by uh, Amal Hassan, amazing woman from uh, Kano. She's got a 1,000 seats, or maybe more now in the last couple of months, a 1,000 uh, young Nigerians, educated Nigerians, who are serving multinational companies out of the offices in uh, Kano and in Abuja, earning foreign exchange for Nigeria. And we could do a lot more than that. And I actually think that the best strategy for Nigeria is let's export Nigerian brains and not try to manufacture, you know, mid-level value-added sort of product. That is definitely the most positive description of a situation that is usually described as a brain drain and a real problem for Nigeria. It certainly is a good place to wrap up our conversation. Thank you for your interesting review of the Nigerian economy its challenges, and the steps that we should be considering as we enter into what we hope is the recovery phase for Nigeria. Thanks, Andrew. You're very welcome. So it's been a great pleasure. Our guest today has been Dr. Andrew Nevin, 
partner and chief economist at PwC Nigeria. Tune in next week for another episode of CLRNN Cast. You can follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or check out our website at clrnn.net. <laughs>